Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Tuesday, July 16th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and the fundraising numbers are in just can't get excited about the fundraising numbers, can you? If you do, you're kind of weird. You don't get into following democratic politics to be excited by fundraising numbers. Am I right? It's just an odd combination. If your number one issue is reforming money in politics, you're absolutely repelled by what should be the number one set of facts coming down the pike this week. You know whose number one issue is money in politics? It's Michael Bennett. The sitting U.S. senator raised $2.8 million, but the former Colorado governor, John Hickenlooper, raised $1.1 million. Of course, Bennett loaned himself $700,000 from his Senate fund. I guess what this means is that if they're both running for president, people will, for some reason, want to give more to the current senator than the former governor. Better O'Rourke raised $3.5 million this quarter, which isn't terrible, except as compared to Better O'Rourke's last quarter. Hell, Better O'Rourke, the moment he announced, did better than he did this quarter. In fact, Better raised a little over $6 million on the first day of his campaign and a little under $7 million on all the other days added together. It might suggest, going to throw this out there, that the $38 million he raised in a single quarter when he was an exciting, charismatic candidate opposing Ted Cruz might have less to do with him being an exciting, charismatic candidate and more to do with him opposing Ted Cruz. Pete Buttigieg, as has been reported prior to today, crushed the field, $24 million raised. If you were gay and you have a summer home, you were asked to give money to Pete Buttigieg. There is a chance you did. Joe Biden was the next most prodigious fundraiser. Elizabeth Warren did well. Her whole shtick is tearing into the people who typically give money to political campaigns, so her $19 million is really impressive. Compared to Warren and all the other people I've mentioned, Seth Moulton's $1.2 million raised and Tim Ryan's $865,000 raised are quite meager. But looked at another way, they're impressive because Seth Moulton didn't get people to give to, say, Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg running for president. Seth Moulton got them to give for Seth Moulton running for president. I mean, the Moulton-Ryan dream team combined generated $2 million. How? Who? It's crazy. I guess it's a way to give money to a sitting member of Congress. Okay, that is true. Maybe he'll be impressed by you will listen to you. But man, can you imagine justifying that expense to your spouse if, say, you both share a checking account or a credit card? Um, honey, what is this ledger item? It says Tim Ryan. Uh, 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 that was some, uh, hotel room gay porn. Yeah, that's what it is. No, no, it's not. 
You're donating to Tim Ryan for president, aren't you? You swore you wouldn't. No, no. I just like his ideas about manufacturing jobs. You never understood the real me. Andrew Yang also raised $2.8 million, mostly from small donors, all giving less than 1000 each. Although, when he becomes president, he will give everyone $1,000 each a month. So I don't know if you would call that a campaign donation or an investment, possibly a bribe. Or, as Marianne Williamson might say, putting an energy out into the universe and paying it forward. Marianne Williamson raised $1.5 million and owes so much consciousness. On the show today, I spiel about a great mystery, Kellyanne and her man. But first, an analysis and prediction of the 2020 presidential race is officially filed without even knowing who the Democratic nominee will be. I mean, come on, it's going to be Tim Ryan. The dude raised $865,000. No, the method of this analysis, which worked extremely well in predicting the 2018 midterms perfectly, in fact, is interesting. It doesn't rely on who the nominee is going to be, unless it's someone very bizarre. It doesn't rely on what those ever-changing polls say. I mean, have you ever asked, who are these undecided voters anyway? Why is everyone only paying attention to them? This analysis pretty much agrees with you. It says, let us just look at a couple of things. Diversity, hatred of the other side, that's about it. Political science professor Rachel Bittekoffer looks at those ideas and tells you who's going to win. Do you want to know who she says? Well, stay tuned. Nah, don't. It's the Democrats. Are you happy? Now listen to why she says that. You know, as I think about it, I think I should have teased the outcome and not the methodology. I'm really bad at this. It explains why I had disappointing sales for my murder mystery novel that revealed the killer on page eight, but then dealt with the forensic criminologist's methods for the next 200 pages. Anyway, Rachel Bittercoffer, up next. So the future is unknowable, and of course nobody knows who's going to win the 2020 presidential election, except my next guest. She's Rachel Bittercoffer. She's the assistant director of the Wasson Center at Christopher Newport University, where she teaches political science, and she's out with a model. And just to give you some, you know, a model, how exciting is that? Well, when I say she nailed the 2018 election, she nailed it. It's been nailed by Rachel Bittercoffer. Hello, Professor <laughs> Bittercoffer. How are you? Yeah, well put. I, I nailed that thing, you, you know, it. like a, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> I, I don't want to go with Christ imagery right off the bat, but yes. <laughs> you nailed it. You, nailed, you know what? Here we go. You nailed it like the Republicans cough. All right, here we go. So... Everyone who comes up with a model needs data and they weigh data in different ways. And I know that you're very influenced by negative partisanship, but what are the big factors? What are the big ingredients that go into the stew? And then we could talk about recipe. What are you really looking at to come up with your models? Yeah, and it's really important that we do that because, you know, probably if someone's listening to this podcast, they're aware of Nate Silver's approach, the 538 model. My model is really very, very different. What I'm looking at is something called negative partisanship. So this idea that we have this huge, you know, factor called polarization. And so when we look at election, take this Kentucky election that was announced yesterday, what matters ultimately is, you know, is the turf of the state doable for Democrats. And in yeah. terms of the, the partisanship of the state, 
you know, that state has what we call a, a Republican score of 15 plus 15 points for it. So that, in my model, is one of the most important variables. And it says, you know, no matter how much money you spend, no matter how great the candidate is, it won't matter because ultimately Republican voters aren't going to cross over to vote for Amy McGrath in today's environment. That right. The days of electoral coalitions jumping ship because they really like somebody or really like the message, those days are gone and people are set into their camps and their tribes. And then the other thing that uh, powers my model is I use demographics and I'm looking primarily at, at college education and diversity and particularly college education because for a while now, we've had voters realigning college educated voters moving away from the Republican Party as they started to embrace things like climate denialism and pushing back on, you know, intellectualism basically. But what happened when Trump emerged is it threw a lot of kerosene into that process, uh, so much so that I anticipated that in 2018, college education was going to be a major predictor of Democrats doing well. So I went through and isolated all the districts that had really strong populations of college-educated vo voters, even better if it also had diversity in that district. And I used that to predict, as you point out, um, very accurately where these surges were going to come from months and months before the election to the district. And, you know, I, like I said, I predicted 40 seeds basically in July of 2018, and that's ultimately what happens. And right. now, now I've turned that model to the Electoral College. So it seems like those factors are very suited to the moment. Uh, Non-college educated whites being so glued to the Republican Party. It wasn't like that in 1970. And the negative partisanship it's definitely a feature of our system for a lot of reasons, including party ideology, purity. Again, that wouldn't have been true in 1970. So is that a strength of your model that it's so very attuned to the realities of today? If you were to use your model from an election of 20 years ago, it might not work. But then again, I don't I, I sense you're not claiming that it would work to have, you know, retroactively forecast the 1980 presidential election. So I'm really glad that you asked that. And in fact, you're the only person that's interviewed me about it that has asked that. So good for you. And and the reason why is because in the academic version of this research, that's exactly what I'm hoping to show. I'm hoping to show, look, when I go backwards through time, this model doesn't work. And usually when you're building a forecasting model, that's not what you want. You want your model to work well, regardless if it's the current election, last election, or, or 10 elections ago, right? Right. And, and the the forecasters like Alan Nathan, I think is his name, will say, oh, this worked in 12 of the last 14 as if that's a feature. But I think what you're pointing out is that it could also be a downfall. It could be, especially when those when those variables stop having as much efficacy. So when we look forward, right, if we were to look at the way things had been, especially those economic variables, then Trump would be in a really strong position for re-election. And you're going to see this conversation come up quite a bit in the next 16 months about, well, Trump's doing great with the economy and the you know unemployment numbers are low. And so these fundamentals that have mattered so much in the past are really looking great for him. But, you know, theoretically, under my research and my argument, those fundamentals have declined in importance unless the economy is doing badly. You know, you don't get a reward now for a good economy. You could get punished for a bad economy still. Uh, but what does matter is that polarization. Tell me, though, your model says the Democrats are going to win and by how much? 
So my model right now, um, based, and again, what I'm using with this model is I'm predicting the, the vote share for each state based on that state's partisanship and percent college education are the two main predictors, but also diversity. And I have a get, I get an estimated two party vote share for the Democrat in that state, which I'm able to estimate, um, whether the state will go blue or red. And with that, you know, the, 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 the three states that Trump has to win to have any chance of recapturing the White House are Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And my model predicts two-party vote shares above 50% for the Democrats. So that leaves us starting off the election right now with Democrats at 278 electoral college votes, which is kind of a problem for Trump, as you can imagine, since he needs that to be lower than 270. So the swing states that I have, there are only four in the model, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, and Iowa are all surplus states for the Democrats. And even if Trump was to sweep all four of those states, he would still be shy and the Democrats would have already crested that 270 mark. Now, your model doesn't really depend on what Democrat is nominated, except asterisk, maybe a real disruptor like Bernie Sanders. And I take it that when you laid out your criteria of the diversity of a state, the college education of a state, and the party polarization of a state, all of the Democrats will be running in an atmosphere where none of those three change. And it seems like none of the Democrats activate any of those three things more than any of the other ones. I mean, maybe you can make the argument that some Democrats will make party polarization seem greater and some will make it seem worse. But in general, the party polarization is the party polarization, not the Democratic candidate polarization. Yes. And, and, you know, given this analysis that I'm putting out on the district level, what, where I think the nominee matters is the, is the targeting and campaign strategy that they'll implement, right? So, um, take, for example, the blue dog Democrats that ran in this cycle. When I look at the district level data, I can see a, a depreciation in t- Democratic turnout where the blue dogs ran versus like the people who, not the progressives, um, but the robustly liberal, regular Democrats, people who just ran as Democrats, right? They were able to turn out a bigger surge among Democrats than the blue dogs. So why is that? Is it the moderate messaging? Is it the, is it who and what doors are getting targeted? I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a combination of those two things. So when we look at, you know, who the nominee is, I think it's more of a matter of the campaign strategies that get implemented from the campaign that are going to matter. Right. Now, let me ask you about your, your rival forecasters. Is it necessarily the case that they're wrong by looking at polls? It could be the case that what the polls are telling the pollsters and then the analysts is just a different version of what you're looking at. In other words, white non-college educated guys are probably going to tell a pollster, I'm voting for the Republicans. So it'll just be uh, reflected. And in fact, since polls are about, they have their flaws, but they're about the candidates in front of you other than the, rather than just these uh, more fundamental aspects of the electorate, uh, maybe there is something to be said for them. Well, number one, I should probably disclose this. Unlike all the other people that use polls in their forecast, or <laughs> forecast I'm actually a pollster that runs my own polls uh, and has my own survey So research, you know just uh, how so bad they are. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of ironic, right? But, you know, no, I, it's, not, it's not a 
matter of better or worse, you know, here's the difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing. What they're doing is time bound, uh, you know, and forecasting, election forecasting has its roots in political science. What it originally was designed to do were two things. Do it with as few variables as possible and do it with as much lead time as possible. So Nate Silver's model ended up being, you know, comparable to mine in terms of overall accuracy at the end when it was running its final iterations in late October. Right. But I dropped mine in July. So, you know, the problem with polling is that you can't get that huge lead time. I mean, it's so it limits you in that regard. And also what the poll-driven forecasting does is it allows many iterations, which, guess what, drives people to your website and makes it exciting to see what the new number is. Your number doesn't change. So in the three months before the election, as everyone keeps uh, checking in to the uh, Bitterkoffer model, they're not going to see any changes. I don't know how many hits you're going to get. I don't know how many hits you want. That's exactly right. So, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, and, and to, to take nothing away from what 538 has done is, you know, what Nate has done with the 538 model is he took something that was basically a, um, you know, outline and he filled it in and made it fantastic. I yeah. mean, it is, you know, all the other spinoffs are just imitations of, of his model. It's definitely the best you know, probability-based forecasting yeah. model, but ultimately it's going to give you a range of probable seat pickups or whatever, you know, outcomes, and it's based on probabilities of those, you know, individual seats flipping or not, right? What I'm doing is a wholly different affair. It's a totally different approach, and the improvement that it makes or the di- the difference that it offers over that is this lead time um, and this parsimony. Yeah. Um, by the way, would you agree that even though he or he, the, the site, his site 538 said that uh, Trump only had, uh, you know, about a third of a chance to win a little less. That doesn't mean he was wrong. Well, not at all. Yeah, not at all. I mean, number one, I mean, what Nate does is a whole lot less risky than what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Nate, I mean, Nate's always got his bases covered because probability is just that. I mean, if it's a 30% chance of the event occurring, you know, I mean, he put out a one in six chance yesterday of Amy McGrath winning her election. His base is always covered, right? So, you well, know. Well, the way he like, would it, say it is since Americans don't understand <laughs> probability, when they say, you know, 68%, he's saying that the, she win and then he gets the blame. I don't know. Depends on how you look at it. His base is covered among the numerate. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I took more credit to him. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I couldn't eat the, you know, week before election 2018 because I didn't just say, hey, it's going to be 42 seats. It ended up being 40. It might have been 41, if not for the malfeasance in North Carolina 9. I also said it's going to be these 41 <laughs> two seats, you know, and, and I didn't put probabilities on it. I just said, these are the ones, right? So, you know, that's, and I've done the same here with this 2020 forecast. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, I did leave myself some wiggle room in the event of large shocks to the system, like a uh, general election independent bid from somebody like Howard Schultz or now maybe Tom Steyer. (laughs) Or even someone competent. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) <laughs> totally. So, you know, but ultimately I'm, I'll be held to account for predictions that are set in stone, you know, so I'm a little envious of Nate, uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't begrudge, you know, their, their uh, fans, uh, their appreciation 
of what that model does. It, it is uh, great in what it does. My model is doing something completely different. So I don't really even see it as a competing model. I see it more as a complementary model. In fact, if Nate wants me to come put my model on 538, call me, Nate. <laughs> well, we know he is a, uh, if not a listener, then, you know, he does have the gist tattoo. That is well known. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Rachel Bitterkoffer is the assistant director of the Wisan Center and teaches political science at Christopher Newport University. She is the author of, does the model have a name? Yeah, well, you know, it's called the negative partisanship model, or otherwise known as the Bitterkoffer model, you know, whichever you prefer. She is the author of the Bitterkoffer model, which relies on how bitter the American populace is. Thank you so much. <laughs> there you go. It's a good way to put it. But not fundraising, because <laughs> if it was fundraising, then it would be the Bitterkoffer model. Yes. <laughs> Bottom bum. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. That was great. <laughs> Thank you so okay. much. And now the spiel. Kellyanne Conway likes to network, but the network she likes best is Fox. It's not hard to understand why. I'm going to tell you what you're guilty of. I wonder what Sean Hannity had in mind. Guilty of Hatch Act violations, emolument clause violations, propagandistic assaults on truth and logic. Nope. You like the president. You like the president. This is the treatment anybody gets. Well, I'm also um, effective. I'm also effective in yes, explaining his policies uh, to America. And everybody knows that. That's a good point. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for the flattery that somehow. Okay, that was Fox last night. Now, with that in mind, let's hear from Kellyanne's appearance on Fox today, where she critiqued the coverage of the four freshman members of the House who the president advised to leave the country. Uh, even Ayanna Presley showed threw a little shade at Nancy Pelosi yesterday in that so-called press conference. It was more like a gaga um, in front of a bunch of supplicants who never challenge their factual assertions and just cover anything the four of them say without um, like scrutiny. Kellyanne, you know without the, got that? Kellyanne Conway demands the tough interviews. And that's, I guess, what she got on Fox when she said this. They represent uh, a dark underbelly in this country of people who are not respecting our troops, are not giving them the resources and the respect that they deserve. They voted against the military aid. They voted against uh, pay raises. They voted against the $700 billion, the $716 billion that this president has put forward. Indeed, a dark underbelly. Dark, so dark. And what do they do? What's this nefarious underbelly representative of so many like them? They vote against military aid. That nefarious cabal issuing public roll call votes that you don't like. The critique did not end there, of course. Conway channeled Sarah Palin's critique of Barack Obama because that landed. We're tired of some of these women palling around with terrorists. And right after that interview, she took some questions from non-Fox media where this exchange went down. What's your ethnicity? Oh, this is going to be a good point. Uh, why is that relevant to this no, number? No, because I'm asking you a question. That's not how the definition of relevant goes. My, my ancestors my, are my, from my, Ireland and Italy. Kelly, my, my own ethnicity is not relevant to the question I'm asking. No, no, it is. Because I'm you're asking, asking you, about, I, he said originally. He no, said originally from. No, I'm, I am. Oh, now I do understand the full context of her point, And yet still the relevance eludes me. In general, it was incoherent and not worth considering. But there is one aspect of Kellyanne Conway's gestalt I, and maybe you, have been pondering. How does her family work? 
Here's how she dealt with this question of her husband. Uh, your husband today penned a piece in the Washington Post. The title, I deny that Trump was a racist, not anymore. I know you've seen it. Do so you agree with your husband? Yes or no? No, I totally disagree, but I work with this president. I know him. I know his heart. I know his actions. I know how much he has helped people of color. And I go by what people do, not what other people say about them. Uh, and, and also, uh, respectfully, I'm not going to run around pointing out everybody's disagreements with the people in their lives. I sure could. I can point out people's disagreements with their former spouses, their current spouses and partners, their future spouses and partners. I don't know what she means by future spouses. Is she a palm reader? You will meet a man. He will be wearing a blue shirt. I'm seeing a D or maybe a B name. You shall marry him, but he shall oppose the import-export bank. Be wary. So George Conway is a conservative lawyer and thinker who simply loathes his wife's boss. Lots of people loathe their wife's boss. Michael Keaton and Martin Mull and Mr. Mom come to mind. But Conway does so and says so publicly. Like today in the Washington Post. Headline, Trump is a racist president. Byline, George Conway. So how does their marriage work, you may wonder? Is it headed for breakup? Are they both in full denial? Is it all an act? I don't know, but I have a theory. And it goes like this. Kellyanne has been a Republican consultant who has had some measure of respect in Republican circles for years. Her husband, George, has also had some respect from the more intellectual and less campaign-oriented side of the Republican Party. Kellyanne is well-positioned to appeal to the Republicans who don't care about Trump's successes or don't even see them as excesses. But that's a pretty narrow band, and if all goes rather poorly for Trump, maybe Kellyanne will be unemployable in the near future. This is one reason why Kellyanne takes pains every so often to exempt herself from some of her boss's tweets and actions, telling Chris Wallace on, guess what, network, Fox. So I'm against separating families. Let me make that clear. I think I was the first person in the administration to go on a show on a Sunday and say that. So Kellyanne put some effort into carving out places where she, as an advisor and spokesperson for the president, disagrees with the president, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. You are on as the spokesperson. We aren't listening to you so you cannot speak for him. But it is a requisite of this White House. The evidence is clear. She is positioning herself to have some post-Trump credibility. And that's where I think George Conway might come in. He represents the part of the Republican Party that disagrees with Trump. The louder and more vocal he is about how much he disagrees with the president, the better standing he will have to eventually launder his wife's actions. The more credibility he gains and retains, the more he is seen as standing up and doing the right thing, the more likely it is that the post-Trump Conway brand survives. Notice how he weighs in on Trump's racism, but is silent on, say, if the president's senior advisor should ignore the House Oversight Committee's subpoena. That advisor, by the way, is Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne serves Trump. George excoriates Trump. One day, Kellyanne steps down. George will stand by her. And the constituency she is trying to stay hireable among will say, well, if George vouches for her, I can still give myself permission to hire her. The whole thing may just be a post-Trump business strategy for a specific target audience, dyed-in-the-wool Republicans who want a kind of ethical out to do what they want to do, which is to say, 
to employ a remorseless, headstrong propagandist who has proved she will stop at nothing to spin her candidate's message, fables, and lies. It's pretty useful for a candidate, right? It's all really clever. Or else, alternate theory, they're going to get divorced the day after the election. Possibility as well. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They look at two factors in determining who Democratic voters will back in the Democratic primary. One, does the voter have a bumper sticker on his or her car which says coexist? And two, do they have more than 12 episodes of the Rachel Maddow show saved in their DVR? TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She has two factors that she uses to determine whether you think Donald Trump's tweets to go back to home countries are racist. One, do you have a bushy mustache, wear a golf shirt with a corporate logo tucked in, and wear a beeper on the outside of your belt? And two, they were racist. On the What Next podcast today, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept breaks down the method to Trump's madness. He really goes deep inside the Democratic caucus to chronicle how the madness actually metastasized from within. The gist, we have but two criteria to determine whether you want to steal my Culture Club album from me. One, do you really want to hurt me? Two, do you really want to make me cry? Umpuru depuru duperu, and thanks for listening.